Book One, Chapter One of the History of the Conquest of Mexico. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. HISTORY OF THE CONQUEST OF MEXICO By William H. Prescott Book One, Introduction, View of the Aztec Civilization Chapter One, Ancient Mexico, Its Climate and Its Products, Its Primitive Races, Aztec Empire the country of the ancient Mexicans, or Aztecs, as they were called, formed but a very small part of the extensive territories comprehended in the modern Republic of Mexico. Its boundaries cannot be defined with certainty. They were much enlarged in the latter days of the empire, when they may be considered as reaching from about the 18th degree north to the 21st on the Atlantic, and from the fourteenth to the nineteenth, including a very narrow strip on the Pacific. In its greatest breadth, it could not exceed five degrees and a half, dwindling as it approached its southeastern limits to less than two. It covered, probably, less than sixteen thousand square leagues. Yet such is the remarkable formation of this country that though not more than twice as large as New England, it presented every variety of climate, and was capable of yielding nearly every fruit found between the equator and the Arctic Circle. All along the Atlantic, the country is bordered by a broad tract called the Tierra Caliente, or hot region, which has the usual high temperature of equinoctial lands. Parched and sandy plains are intermingled with others of exuberant fertility, almost impervious from thickets of aromatic shrubs and wild flowers, in the midst of which tower up trees of that magnificent growth which is found only within the tropics. In this wilderness of sweets lurks the fatal malaria, engendered, probably, by the decomposition of rank vegetable substances in a hot and humid soil. The season of the bilious fever, vomito, as it is called, which scourges these coasts, continues from the spring to the autumnal equinox, when it is checked by the cold winds, which descend from Hudson's Bay. These winds, in the winter season, frequently freshen into tempests, and, sweeping down the Atlantic coast and the winding gulf of Mexico, burst with the fury of a hurricane on its unprotected shores, and on the neighboring West India islands. Such are the mighty spells with which nature has surrounded this land of enchantment, as if to guard the golden treasures locked up within its bosom. The genius and enterprise of man have proved more potent than her spells. After passing some twenty leagues across this burning region, 
the traveller finds himself rising into a purer atmosphere. His limbs recover their elasticity. He breathes more freely, for his senses are not now oppressed by the sultry heats and intoxicating perfumes of the valley. The aspect of nature, too, has changed, and his eye no longer revels among the gay variety of colors with which the landscape was painted there. The vanilla, the indigo, and the flowering cocoa groves appear as he advances. The sugar-cane and the glossy-leaved banana still accompany him, and when he has ascended about four thousand feet, he sees in the unchanging verdure and the rich foliage of the liquid amber-tree that he has reached the height where clouds and mists settle in their passage from the Mexican Gulf. This is the region of perpetual humidity, but he welcomes it with pleasure, as announcing his escape from the influence of the deadly vomito. He has entered the Tierra Templada, or temperate region, whose character resembles that of the temperate zone of the globe. The features of the scenery become grand and even terrible. His road sweeps along the base of mighty mountains, once gleaming with volcanic fires, and still resplendent in their mantles of snow, which serve as beacons to the mariner for many a league at sea. All around he beholds traces of their ancient combustion, as his road passes along vast tracts of lava, bristling in the innumerable fantastic forms into which the fiery torrent has been thrown by the obstacles in its career. Perhaps, at the same moment, as he casts his eye down some steep slope, or almost unfathomable ravine, on the margin of the road, he sees their depths glowing with the rich blooms and enameled vegetation of the tropics. Such are the singular contrasts presented, at the same time, to the senses in this picturesque region. Still, pressing upwards, the traveller mounts into other climates, favourable to other kinds of cultivation. The yellow maize, or Indian corn, as we usually call it, has continued to follow him up from the lowest level, but he now first sees fields of wheat, and the other European grains brought into the country by the conquerors. Mingled with them, he views the plantations of the aloe, or maguey, agave americana, applied to such various and important uses by the Aztecs. The oaks now acquire a sturdier growth, and the dark forests of pine announce that he has entered the Tierra Fria, or cold region, the third and last of the great natural terraces into which the country is divided. When he has climbed to the height of between seven and eight thousand feet, the weary traveller sets his foot on the summit of the Cordillera of the Andes, the colossal range that, after traversing South America and the Isthmus of Darien, spreads out as it enters Mexico, 
into that vast sheet of tableland which maintains an elevation of more than six thousand feet for the distance of nearly two hundred leagues until it gradually declines in the higher latitudes of the north across the mountain rampart a chain of volcanic hills stretches in a westerly direction of still more stupendous dimensions forming indeed some of the highest land on the globe their peaks entering the limits of perpetual snow diffuse a grateful coolness over the elevated plateaus below for these last though termed cold enjoy a climate the mean temperature of which is not lower than that of the central parts of italy the air is exceedingly dry the soil though naturally good is rarely clothed with the luxuriant vegetation of the lower regions it frequently indeed has a parched and barren aspect owing partly to the greater evaporation which takes place on these lofty plains through the diminished pressure of the atmosphere and partly no doubt to the want of trees to shelter the soil from the fierce influence of the summer sun in the time of the aztecs the tableland was thickly covered with larch oak cypress and other forest trees the extraordinary dimensions of some of which remaining to the present day show that the curse of barrenness in later times is chargeable more on man than on nature indeed the early spaniards made as indiscriminate war on the forests as did our puritan ancestors though with much less reason after once conquering the country they had no lurking ambush to fear from the submissive semi-civilized indian and were not like our forefathers obliged to keep watch and ward for a century this spoliation of the ground however is said to have been pleasing to their imaginations as it reminded them of the plains of their own castile the tableland of europe where the nakedness of the landscape forms the burden of every traveller's lament who visits the country midway across the continent somewhat nearer the pacific than the atlantic ocean at an elevation of nearly seven thousand five hundred feet is the celebrated valley of mexico it is of an oval form about sixty-seven leagues in circumference and is encompassed by a towering rampart of porphyritic rock which nature seems to have provided though ineffectually to protect it from invasion the soil once carpeted with a beautiful verdure and thickly sprinkled with stately trees is often bare and in many places white with the incrustation of salts caused by the draining of the waters five lakes are spread over the valley occupying one-tenth of its surface on the opposite borders of the largest of these basins much shrunk in its dimensions since the days of the aztecs stood the cities of mexico and tezcuco the capitals of the two most potent and flourishing states of anahuac whose history with that of the mysterious races that preceded them in the country 
exhibits some of the nearest approaches to civilization to be met with anciently on the North American continent. Of these races, the most conspicuous were the Toltecs. Advancing from a northerly direction, but from what region is uncertain, they entered the territory of Anahuac, probably before the close of the seventh century. Of course, little can be gleaned, with certainty, respecting a people whose written records have perished, and who are known to us only through the traditionary legends of the nations that succeeded them. By the general agreement of these, however, the Toltecs were well instructed in agriculture and many of the most useful mechanic arts, were nice workers of metals, invented the complex arrangement of time adopted by the Aztecs, and, in short, were the true fountains of the civilization which distinguished this part of the continent in later times. They established their capital at Tula, north of the Mexican Valley, and the remains of extensive buildings were to be discerned there at the time of the conquest. The noble ruins of religious and other edifices, still to be seen in various parts of New Spain, are referred to this people, whose name, Toltec, has passed into a synonym for architect. Their shadowy history reminds us of those primitive races who preceded the ancient Egyptians in the march of civilization, fragments of whose monuments, as they are seen at this day, incorporated with the buildings of the Egyptians themselves, give to these latter the appearance of almost modern constructions. After a period of four centuries, the Toltecs, who had extended their sway over the remotest borders of Anahuac, having been greatly reduced, it is said, by famine, pestilence, and unsuccessful wars, disappeared from the land as silently and mysteriously as they had entered it. A few of them still lingered behind, but much the greater number, probably, spread over the region of Central America and the neighboring isles, and the traveler now speculates on the majestic ruins of Mitla, and Palenque, as possibly the work of this extraordinary people. After the lapse of another hundred years, a numerous and rude tribe, called the Chichemecs, entered the deserted country from the regions of the far northwest. They were speedily followed by other races of higher civilization, perhaps of the same family with the Toltecs, whose language they appear to have spoken. The most noted of these were the Aztecs, or Mexicans, and the Acolhuans. The latter, better known in later times by the name of Tezcucans, from their capital, Tezcuco, on the eastern border of the Mexican lake, were peculiarly fitted by their comparatively mild religion and manners for receiving the tincture of civilization which could be derived from the few Toltecs that still remained in the country. This, in their turn, they communicated to the barbarous Chichemis, a large portion of which became amalgamated with the new settlers as one nation. 
availing themselves of the strength derived, not only from the increase of numbers, but from their own superior refinement, the Akolhuans gradually stretched their empire over the ruder tribes in the north, while their capital was filled with a numerous population, busily employed in many of the more useful and even elegant arts of a civilized community. In this palmy state they were suddenly assaulted by a warlike neighbor, the Tepanecs, their own kindred, and inhabitants of the same valley as themselves. Their provinces were overrun, their armies beaten, their king assassinated, and the flourishing city of Tezcuco became the prize of the victor. From this abject condition, the uncommon abilities of the young prince, Nezahuacoyotl, the rightful heir to the crown, backed by the efficient aid of his Mexican allies, at length redeemed the state, and opened to it a new career of prosperity, even more brilliant than the former. The Mexicans, with whom our history is principally concerned, came also, as we have seen, from the remote regions of the north, the populous hive of nations in the new world, as it has been in the old. They arrived on the borders of Anahuac towards the beginning of the thirteenth century, some time after the occupation of the land by the kindred races. For a long time they did not establish themselves in any permanent residence, but continued shifting their quarters to different parts of the Mexican valley, enduring all the casualties and hardships of a migratory life. On one occasion they were enslaved by a more powerful tribe, but their ferocity soon made them formidable to their masters. After a series of wanderings and adventures, which need not shrink from comparison with the most extravagant legends of the heroic ages of antiquity, they at length halted on the southwestern borders of the principal lake in the year 1325. They there beheld, perched on the stem of a prickly pear, which shot out from the crevice of a rock that was washed by the waves, a royal eagle of extraordinary size and beauty, with a serpent in his talons, and his broad wings open to the rising sun. They hailed the auspicious omen, announced by an oracle, as indicating the site of their future city, and laid its foundations by sinking piles into the shallows, for the low marshes were half buried under water. On these they erected their light fabrics of reeds and rushes, and sought a precarious subsistence from fishing and from the wild fowl which frequented the waters, as well as from the cultivation of such simple vegetables as they could raise on their floating gardens. The place was called Tenochtitlan, though only known to Europeans by its other name of Mexico, derived from their war-god Mexitli. The legend of its foundation is still further commemorated by the device of the eagle and the cactus, which form the arms of the modern Mexican Republic. Such were the humble beginnings of the Venice of the Western world. The forlorn condition of the new settlers was made still worse by domestic feuds. 
a part of the citizens seceded from the main body, and formed a separate community on the neighboring marshes. Thus divided, it was long before they could aspire to the acquisition of territory on the mainland. They gradually increased, however, in number, and strengthened themselves yet more by various improvements in their polity and military discipline, while they established a reputation for courage, as well as cruelty in war, which made their name terrible throughout the valley. In the early part of the fifteenth century, nearly a hundred years from the foundation of the city, an event took place which created an entire revolution in the circumstances, and, to some extent, in the character of the Aztecs. This was the subversion of the Texcucan monarchy by the Tepanecs already noticed. When the oppressive conduct of the victors had at length aroused a spirit of resistance, its prince, Nezahuacoyotl, succeeded, after incredible perils and escapes, in mustering such a force as, with the aid of the Mexicans, placed him on a level with his enemies. In two successive battles these were defeated with great slaughter, their chiefs slain, and their territory, by one of those sudden reverses which characterize the wars of petty states, passed into the hands of the conquerors. It was awarded to Mexico, in return for its important services. Then was formed that remarkable league, which, indeed, has no parallel in history. It was agreed between the states of Mexico, Tezcuco, and the neighboring little kingdom of Tlacopan, that they should mutually support each other in their wars, offensive and defensive, and that, in the distribution of the spoil, one-fifth should be assigned to Tlacopan, and the remainder be divided, in what proportion is uncertain, between the other powers. The Tezcucan writers claim an equal share for their nation with the Aztecs. But this does not seem to be warranted by the immense increase of territory subsequently appropriated by the latter and we may account for any advantage conceded to them by the treaty on the supposition that, however inferior they may have been originally, they were, at the time of making it, in a more prosperous condition than their allies, broken and dispirited by long oppression. What is more extraordinary than the treaty itself, however, is the fidelity with which it was maintained, during a century of uninterrupted warfare that ensued, no instance occurred where the parties quarreled over the division of the spoil, which so often makes shipwreck of similar confederacies among civilized states. The Allies, for some time, found sufficient occupation for their arms in their own valley, but they soon overleaped its rocky ramparts, and by the middle of the fifteenth century, under the first Montezuma, had spread down the sides of the tableland to the borders of the Gulf of Mexico. Tecnatitlan, the Aztec capital, gave evidence of the public prosperity. Its frail tenements were 
supplanted by solid structures of stone and lime. Its population rapidly increased. Its old feuds were healed. The citizens who had seceded were again brought under a common government with the body, and the quarter they occupied was permanently connected with the parent city, the dimensions of which, covering the same ground, were much larger than those of the modern capital. Fortunately, the throne was filled by a succession of able princes, who knew how to profit by their enlarged resources and by the martial enthusiasm of the nation. Year after year saw them return, loaded with the spoils of conquered cities and with throngs of devoted captives to their capital. No state was able long to resist the accumulated strength of the Confederates. At the beginning of the sixteenth century, just before the arrival of the Spaniard, the Aztec dominion reached across the continent from the Atlantic to the Pacific, and under the bold and bloody Huitzilto, its arms had been carried far over the limits already noticed as defining its permanent territory, into the farthest corners of Guatemala and Nicaragua. This extent of empire, however limited in comparison with that of many other states, is truly wonderful, considering it as the acquisition of a people whose whole population and resources had so recently been comprised within the walls of their own petty city, and considering, moreover, that the conquered territory was thickly settled by various races, bred to arms like the Mexicans, and little inferior to them in social organization. The history of the Aztecs suggests some strong points of resemblance to that of the ancient Romans, not only in their military successes, but in the policy which led to them. End of chapter 1 from book 1 of the History of the Conquest of Mexico Read by Dennis Sayers in Modesto, California for LibriVox Fall 2007